God's word beginning in Luke 17 verse 20 says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding wheat together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vulture will gather. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. And Father, we want to hear you speak. Lord, we're not just here to hear opinions of people, but want to hear what you have said to us. And Lord, may it motivate and encourage and exhort and even bring new faith this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, what does the future hold? Is it going to be bright? Or is it going to be gloomy? If you lean to the left politically, you might be afraid that the Right-wing climate deniers have doomed the earth to near annihilation. The future is bleak. The end is near. If you lean to the right politically, you might be afraid that the liberal media, the liberal universities, and liberal culture will soon be joined by a liberal, or even worse, socialistic government. The, the end is near. The future is bleak. Americans tend to be fearful right now of the future, thinking that things are only going to get worse. Well, what will the future hold? Is it going to be happy all the live long day? Well, while we tend to have a negative view of the future, we often want our stories to have positive, positive ones. We don't like it when at the end of the movie or the story, the hero dies. And if it's in a movie, you know, uh, they just set it up for a sequel. Because, you know, they can't leave it with something bad happening. It always has to turn good. Yet what will the future hold? Will it be better, worse, more of the same? Can we even really know? Well, Jesus this morning has men come and ask him, well, when's the kingdom of God going to come? And he tells them four things about the future and four things about the kingdom of God. If you have your bulletin, you can see the outline 
because Jesus is going to tell them that the kingdom is actually already here. And then he's going to tell them of the timing and the scope of the kingdom. Actually, it's not on your bulletin, so you might want to write it down, or maybe not. Then, third, the arrival of the kingdom in verses 26 through 30. The arrival of the kingdom. And fourth, the response to the kingdom in verses 31 through 37. So first, the first thing Jesus tells us in verses 20 to 21 is that the kingdom is here. And you have to remember that right before this, Jesus healed ten lepers. And then in response to this, the Pharisees come to him and say, Jesus, when is the kingdom of God coming? Well, we have to remember that sometimes we use similar words, or similar phrases with different meanings. My friend Richie Goodrich was here last week, and as you learned, he's a missionary in Australia. And there, he said, if someone asks you, how are you going? They're not asking you, what mode of transportation are you using to get there? That's their way of saying, well, how are you doing today? Or if you as a North American are talking to a friend from almost anywhere else in the world, or we could just say South America, and they say, hey, this afternoon, would you like to go out to the field and play some football? You might show up to the same field, but have different expectations of the game you're going to play. We use same words but they have different meaning. And when the Pharisees ask, when is the kingdom of God coming, they had very clear ideas of their head of what that meant. Historian Emil Schuer describes five of them. First, they believed the Messiah would vindicate them by taking them from tribulation to a glorious kingdom. Second, the Messiah would destroy any and all opposing nations. Third, Jerusalem would be restored to its glorious position and power. Fourth, Israel was going to become the center of the world and all nations would be subject to her. Fifth, this would lead to eternal peace, righteousness, and glory. In other words, there is going to be a very clear political kingdom of power and might that reigns through its military power and everyone could see it. And yet, in contrast to that, Jesus says in verse 20, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. They would have been shocked. What? We know what the kingdom of God is like and saying, no, it's not like that at all. The kingdom of God is not measurable, observable, and reputable. You can't dissect it. You can't examine it like a specimen in a biology class. As well, neither is the kingdom of God going to be here or there. It's not going to be in Jerusalem, in New York, London, Beijing, or any here or there. Rather, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. There's a lot of debate. What does in the midst of you mean? It could mean that the kingdom of God is in front of them, around them, and could also mean it's in you, like inside of you. Now, if he's saying inside of you, this would be a little odd since he's talking about the Pharisees, and we don't often see a positive view of them. But it could be referring to that. And if so, it would be like Romans 14, 17, where Paul says the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But more likely, I think Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is in your midst or in front of you. And why is he saying that? Well, because he's the king. And where the king is, that's where the kingdom is. The kingdom of God is in front of you. It's in your midst. You know, He wants them to realize, look, I just healed 10 lepers, and the kingdom is right here in front of you. 
And yet what was miraculous as we study that about the healing was not just that they were healed physically, but the one who came back who was healed spiritually. Jesus is wanting them to see that what he came to do was not just physical restoration, though he's going to do that one day. He came first to bring spiritual transformation. Thus, rather than looking for a Messiah and a kingdom of military rule, they should see the king who comes to conquer their sin. What is needed to radically transform the world is not Jesus, the military leader, going off and removing heads. It's Jesus, the spiritual leader, coming and transforming hearts. And yet that's not what they're looking for. And so though the kingdom of God is there in their midst, they're not seeing it. And sadly, sometimes we can have right in front of us what we're looking for and not even see it. One of my professors told this story of how he was a pastor in a town, and in that town they had trains that you could take to, for transit. And he went into work, and on the way home, he got on the train, he was crowded, he looked for a seat, and he sat down. When the train went to all their stops, when it came to his station, he got off, and as he was getting off, he saw on the door right in front of him, his adult daughter got off. And he's like, we were on the same train, and I didn't even know it. He's like, yeah. She said, I know. He's like, well, how did you know? She said, well, I saw you get on the train, look right at me, and then keep looking for a seat. You're right there in his midst was his own daughter, and yet he was so focused on finding a seat that he could look her in the face and, nope, no seat there, and keep going. And the Pharisees are doing something even worse than that. Right in front of them is the kingdom of God, and they're going, huh, Jesus, where's the kingdom of God? When's it coming? He's saying, it's right here. It's in your midst. Don't you see? You know, sadly today, even in churches, people are clamoring and longing for things that are right in front of them. Oh, Jesus, would you give me meaning? Oh, Jesus, can you help this political party to win so I can have hope? Jesus, can you give me more stuff and stuff so I can have joy? And he says, I'm meaning. I'm hope. I'm joy. Don't look to all this other stuff. I'm that in front of you right now. All you need to do is turn from those empty places and submit and trust in me. And submission is really the key. It's the key to understanding the kingdom being in front of you. And it's really a theme that runs throughout the Bible. Because we want God's kingdom as long as it's serving our kingdom. The book of Judges is one of the most interesting one of the most sad as well, books in the Bible. And as you read it, you see the nation of Israel slowly spiraling into greater and greater sin and farther and greater rejection of God. And yet as you go on, a phrase keeps getting repeated over and over again, and that is, there is no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We desire power and control over our life, and we don't want to submit to anyone. And that was the Pharisees' problem. They didn't want to submit to Christ. They had their kingdom. They had it set up how they wanted it, and they would not allow anything else. And like the Pharisees, Jesus is calling us 
Are we going to live in submission to him and his kingdom, or do we only want him to build ours? And yet, Jesus' words create a tension, because Jesus said the kingdom is in the midst of you, and yet he also taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. So is the kingdom already here, or is the kingdom in the future? And the answer is yes. As you study, there's a helpful phrase, at least I and others have found it helpful, and that is as you look at God's prophecies, some of them have already been fulfilled, and yet they are not yet completely fulfilled. And so you see many things when Christ came the first time that he already has set up his kingdom, and yet it's not yet completely inaugurated. His kingdom is not yet fully on this earth. And that really leads to Jesus' second thing. The second point, if you'd like to follow an outline in verses 22 to 25, is the timing, scope, and rejection of the kingdom. The timing, scope, and rejection of the kingdom. Because you notice that Jesus turns. He was having the Pharisees talk to him. And then he turns and he talks to his disciples in verse 22. And he says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. So he's telling them, look, the kingdom's here, I'm here, but one day I won't be in your midst. Again, the kingdom's already in your midst, but it's not yet fully here. Because Jesus first came to rule and conquer hearts. But he will come again, and when he comes again, he will set up his physical kingdom. However, the days have not yet come. And thus, like them, we should desire, we'll long for Jesus to return. At the church I grew up in, the music minister always ended the service by saying, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, which is from 1 Corinthians 16.22. Maranatha just means that, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Does Jesus returning excite you? I can remember being in high school and my church was really into end times, so I was often really scared. But I remember thinking, I really want Jesus to return, but I really would like to go to college. I'd really like to get married. So if Jesus could kind of wait for those things to happen, that would be my preference. And maybe you're similar. I'd love for Jesus to return, but I really want to be able to drive. I would love for Jesus to return, but can I just married i'd love for jesus to return but can i have kids or can i not have kids again well i'd love for jesus to return but i just have a bucket list could i finish that and then when i check the last one jesus could like pick me up on the plane as i'm going home you know i want you jesus but there's a lot of stuff here that i really want to experience first however if we're honest each of those is saying something really untrue Each of those is saying, in essence, Jesus, you just are not good enough. There's some good, even better things that I want. And then after I've had my fill of this earth, then you can kind of take me up to your second-rate kingdom. Hebrews 10.28 says, though, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sins, but to save those who, notice what it says, to save those who are eagerly, waiting for him are you eager 
Are you longing for his return? Now, my point in that is not to say we should despise the things of earth. It's not to say if you have a bucket list, you should go burn it. You should just take me on it when you go with it, when you do it. Now, the point is not to deny any of those good gifts God has given us. It's to realize, though, that they are mere shadows, and Christ is the substance. They're the brochure. He's the reality. And may God give us such a desire, such a delight in him, that we too would cry in our hearts, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And yet these words were given to the disciples as an instruction because Jesus says, you're going to want that, and I'm not going to come right away. When will Jesus return? Is it going to be this year, 2020? Maybe 2020, 25. Maybe 2050. Maybe 50-50. We don't know when he's going to return. But we do know that we should eagerly, though not impatiently, be waiting and longing for his return. And yet we have to watch out because Jesus gives us a warning. Verse 23, and they will say to you, look here, look there. Do not go out or follow them. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that you have other Christians who will say, follow this timeline and it will show us when Christ will return. You've read of Christians who have said, in this year, at this place, he'll return. And the more you long for something, the more you can actually be deceived. We've all been on car trips. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And it's easy for the other siblings to then, oh, as soon as we round this bend, we'll be there. Because the more you long for it, the more you're open to being tricked. And Jesus is saying, don't be tricked. Don't be deceived. It will be clear when I come. Well, how clear? Verse 24, it'll be when like lightning illumines the whole sky. One of the beautiful things of North Texas is the thunderstorms and lightning storms. You may not like them. I think they're wonderful. You you can have your blinds drawn, and there's some lightning that even with the blinds drawn for a second, you can see across the whole room. It lights up the whole sky. And when it happens, afterwards, no one goes, did you put the lights on? What, What happened? Everyone knows the lightning just illumined everything. There's no question about it. And Jesus is saying, when he returns, we're not going to be going, huh, was that Jesus? It'll be so apparent. It'll be like lightning that shines upon everything. Now notice this is a sharp contrast to his first coming. Because at his first coming, the people in Jerusalem had to be told from Magi in the east. The only people who knew were shepherds, his parents, and the Magi. And yet when he comes again, it'll be clearly, globally, and unmistakably apparent that he is here. And the disciples, they're probably rejoicing. A global kingdom, yes, this is more like the Pharisees, what we wanted. We wanted this global kingdom. But then in verse 25, Jesus says something that goes against what they expected. Because he says, but first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. You may have noticed he said, it is necessary. There's no other way. Jesus first came to conquer sin, and to do this, he must suffer and die, be rejected, as he said, in our place. 
know, Jesus establishes his kingdom not with a clenched sword. Rather, he told Peter, put down your sword. Not by swarming crowds pushing him to a throne, but swarming crowds chanting for his crucifixion. You know, Jesus' victory comes through his rejection, suffering, and death. And that's also the pattern for us. We must expect that as his kingdom grows, it's going to be through our suffering, our rejection, and even our death. Thus we live even in the midst of suffering, knowing that God uses that and has allowed it before he returns to fix it all one day. However, Jesus is really helping us here because as the saying goes, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. I don't know what your experience is with the doctor. Some people hate the doctor and you have to like pin them down to give them a shot. I don't really care for it, but I always tell the nurse, I just don't want to watch. And they always say what? They always say, this is going to hurt for just a second. It'll be over. And being forewarned helps you to know, oh, that pinch, that wasn't bad. That wasn't like they messed up and now I got to panic like I was. No, okay, it's over. Well, Jesus lets us know in advance. He tells us, look, going to be suffering. I am coming back, but it's not yet here. And he helps us know this. And that momentary pain, like that needle, it's going to hurt, but it's going to produce more happiness in the end. Paul writes something similar, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And yet this delay, because Jesus came, and now we're almost 2,000 years since. And this delay can lead to complacency. It can lead to people mocking. It can lead to further rejection, people living for their own desires. And yet, though it might be catchy to say you only live once, it's not true. One day, Jesus will return. And one day, every one of us, will individually stand before him. And instead of scoffing about his delay in return, or becoming complacent, 2 Peter 3.11 says, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming days of God? And so he told us there's going to be a delay. We've been warned. And so let us live confidently and boldly in lives of holiness and godliness as we wait for him. And so Jesus has told them the kingdom is in your midst. He's told them of its timing. He's told them of its delay. But now, thirdly, he's going to say, when it comes, it's going to come suddenly. In verses 26 through 30, we have the third point, the arrival of the kingdom. Verses 26 to 30, the arrival of the kingdom. And Jesus gives two Old Testament examples of abrupt destruction, how they should warn them of Jesus' coming kingdom. The first one is saying it's going to be like the days of Noah. People are going to be eating, drinking, marrying, going on. Now the point of that is not that any of that is bad. The point is they're just going about normal life. They didn't expect that anything would change suddenly. Yet then the flood came and destroyed them all. He says it's going to be similar like the days of Lot. 
which people were doing, again, the normal things of life, planning for the future. And one of the things they were doing was, says in verse 28, they were buying and selling, planting and building. You know, if you expect tomorrow that you're going to sell your house, you're normally not out planting seeds for the fall garden. Like, this is going to end. It's over. We're not going to plant. Well, in the days of Lot, they're out planting and building. They have no expectation that tomorrow the end will come. And yet Jesus goes on, verses 29, that like Sodom, the fire will come and destroy. And it'll be just like that when the Son of Man will be revealed. And the point here is not that they were unwarned, but rather they were uncaring and unrepentant. Noah and Lot, you can read, both warned the people. They said they need to flee. But the people wanted to keep living as they wanted. Like the people in Judges, they wanted to be the king. They wanted to live and do what is right in their own eyes. And Jesus, too, warns that if we don't flee to him now, we won't be safe. And yet, sadly, most people, even most Christians, live each day without any thought towards God. Each day is lived with no thought that at any moment we could meet our maker. It's as though we're watching television and someone comes in and they say, you need to get out of here. There's a fire in the house. And you go, eh, the big game's about to start. And I got an amazing dip in the oven. So I just think I don't want to stay for a while and enjoy those first. Say, what? There's a fire. Who cares about a game and dip? You need to get out. You know, yeah, what is this fire that you talk about? I don't even know what that means. I'm going to stay here and enjoy. And Jesus is warning, no, destruction will come. if You don't find safe refuge in him. And I wanted to pause for a second here, though, because I wonder if some of you maybe internally are cringing. Ugh destruction, fire, brimstone. Like those are the type of churches we need to be moving away from. That's not the message we need to preach. And I even talk to friends and family who say, look, look, we don't need to make the message about Jesus coming. That's what those pastors of old, and that's why the church had problems, because they were so focused on judgment and destruction. Instead, we need to talk about positive things, God's love. God's kindness, God's hurt, God's mercy. We're going to win more people. We're going to save them from that judgment if we tell them these wonderful aspects of God. Well, no one wanted to hear about it in Noah's day or Lot's day either. You know, the issue is not what do we want to hear. You know, if your faith is about give me what I want to hear, well, then when are you ever going to be corrected? Hopefully we can all look back in our life and realize, I was wrong on certain issues. Well, how are we going to be corrected if we only will hear what we want to hear? If your reading of the Bible, if my reading of the Bible is always only confirming what I want to be true, then I'm probably not actually reading it in an honest way. There will be some things that we read and go, ooh, because God is not who we want him to be. He is who he is, and we need to conform to him. Now, to be clear, 
it was wrong in the past and it is wrong in the present if all we emphasize is fire and judgment and we try and manipulate people to come into Christ. That is wrong. The Bible does talk about God's love, his mercy, and his kindness. Yet it is also wrong if today we don't talk about God's judgment, his punishment. Whether people want to hear it or not is not the issue that should be discussed. Yes, knowing where people are coming from might affect how we deliver the message and the way we do it, but it should never stop us from telling the whole message that Jesus has given us. And yet this is one of the amazing things that I love about the Bible and about Christ is there's no asterisks. There's no hidden messages. Just yesterday, not picking on them, I'm sure they're wonderful people, but the Patterson Auto Group had this commercial. Bring your, down, bring your tax return and we'll match it dollar for dollar for down payment on the new car or used. Wow, what a deal, except there's a little asterisk. Wasn't, I mean, it was easy to see, but it was little, and it said up to $500, which, I mean, they are giving you $500, and hey, that's generous, I guess, but you might think, hey, I got a tax return for $5,000. They're giving me five. No, that's not what they're promising. There's little fine print. Jesus doesn't have any fine print. He doesn't have part of his message that's like, eh, First, I'm going to get you here to the dealership, so to speak, and then I'll make the sale, and then I'll, oh, actually, yeah, that didn't count. No, he has told us all of his message. And so he's warning us, the judgment is coming, and we must be prepared. Well, how do we prepare? Well, Jesus gives us that in verses 31 through 37, the last point, the response to the kingdom. Verse 31 says, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. You know, the image here is not going back. Their housetops were flat, and they had an external set of stairs. So the image is, don't go back down into your house. No, take the quickest exit and leave. The situation is so urgent that they should give no thought to possessions. Just go for your life. I have a friend of mine who's a firefighter in Ohio, and a couple times he shared stories with me of the danger of going back in your house to save things. You may not realize it, but the temperature will immediately shoot up once a fire's been in the house. And he's told more of one story of men and women going back in just to get their keys or their laptop or whatever, and the firefighters find them a few steps in. The heat immediately killed them. They were so focused on their car, they lost their life. And Jesus is saying, look, don't be going back for anything else. Come just to me. And then he gives the illustration of a man working in a field. Again, rather than going back to the house, just flee. And then Jesus gives this allusion back to Genesis 19.26. He says, remember the wife of Lot. You may know the story. As Lot is being let out, he and his daughters and his wife, his wife turns around, and she was warned not to do that, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Now, the point is not that she was like, oh, I got a crick, and oh, psh, salt. It's not that she made a mistake. It's that while her feet were going to safety, her heart was still longing for Sodom. It was a longing look back is the point. 
It's not that she inadvertently turned her head. And we have to be aware of that similar danger. Our feet can lead us to church. Our feet can lead us to Bible studies and to being with Christians. But our hearts, though it looks like because of our feet they're going to the Savior, our heart is looking back, longing for the sin that we have supposedly given up. And Jesus gave a similar warning, Luke 9, 62. He says, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. No one who does that is fit for the kingdom of God. In Rocky Palestine, as you're plowing along, if you're looking back, the plow may hit a rock and catapult plower. You're going over the front. So you always have to be watching where you're going. And spiritually, he's saying, you've got to be looking forward, looking to Christ, not looking back and going, oh, but it was really fun before I came to Christ because I did this, this, and this, and I really enjoyed it. One can't faithfully and fully follow Christ with one eye back on the sinful slavery that they abandoned to come to Christ. Well, Jesus goes on, verse 33, he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will destroy it, but whoever destroys it will save it. Again, Jesus doesn't mince words. For to preserve your life, you have to destroy what used to be, in your view, joy and life. This is where, again, the Bible is very honest. We don't reject sin because it's temporarily unenjoyable. In fact, sin is almost always temporarily enjoyable, or else we wouldn't do it. In the moment, don't we love it when we have that cut down that brings laugh and applause? Do we love how our barrage of logic and anger just leaves them in a little speechless puddle? Oh, you destroyed me. And they're like, yes, vindication, my words, one. Until five minutes later when we realize we've crushed a relationship. And we brought ruin and destruction and we go, oh, why did I do that again? You know, in the moment, it's pleasurable until we see the fruit of it. But it's not just with our words. It could be people praising us. And it's like a death to say, I'm not going to live for what these people say about me. They may reject me, but I'm living with my eyes on the Savior. Because we all know faithfulness to Christ may mean relational, financial, physical harm on earth. But Jesus says, look, you're either going to save your life now or destroy it, and the flip will come on the other side. Jesus is honest. He says, look, the pain now is worth it because the reward later will be better. Yes, you are going to suffer now, he says, but there's something much better coming. Or he says, look, you can try and squeeze out every ounce of joy out of this life. Never offend anyone. Never stick up for truth and not righteousness. Always go with what your impulses tell you. But Jesus says doing that will cause you to lose your life. So which or for whom are you living? But then Jesus goes on, verses 34 and 35, because he shows the radical quick nature of his coming is going to leave a separation because two will be in a bed and one will be taken. Two will be grinding flour and the other one will be abandoned. And there's kind of two things on a very kind of superficial level. You may have noticed this happening during the day and night. Because when Christ returns, it's going to be night somewhere and day somewhere else. No matter what you're doing, 
he's going to return, and one will be taken, the other not. But I think more significantly, it's warning that being close to godly people does not mean you are godly yourself. Being with saved people does not mean you are saved. The fact that your family, your parents, your spouse loves God will not matter if you don't. Two will be at the Bible study. One will be taken and one will be left. The fact that you've surrounded yourself with Christian friends will not matter. Two will be watching Netflix and one will be taken and one left. The question is not who are you with, but who are you living for? Who do you trust? The coming of Jesus will provide a definitive separation. And the only thing that will matter at that point is not your relationship to others, but what is your relationship to him? Do you trust and treasure him? Do you long for him to return? Are you ready? Well, then the disciples ask, where, Lord? And Jesus then gives a statement that seems very mysterious, at least to me. It says, where the body is, there also will the vultures be gathered. I think it's kind of giving this illusion, driving along Texas highways. You sometimes go and you start seeing a circling. You see these birds, and what are the birds for sure showing you? Well, there's death somewhere below them. And Jesus is again saying, look, it's going to be clear. Just like you know exactly what's happened when the vulture is there, when he comes, the judgment will be clear. There will be no questions about it. Well, so how do we prepare? Well, we prepare like Noah and Lot. We put the provision that was provided. For Noah, it was an ark. For Lot, it was fleeing the city. For us, we know it's Christ himself. He made it so that we are prepared. And even around us, we're given examples. How do we prepare? Well, the ten lepers. Nine only wanted Jesus to make their physical life better. One came back and worshipped. How do we prepare? Well, it's not just by being good people. Look at Luke chapter 18. Because there in verses 9 through 14, we'll examine this in detail. We're given these two pictures. One is a religious man, and the other is seemingly a sinner. The religious man, he says in verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He prepares by doing all these things for God. What does the other man say? Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So you prepare yourself by admitting there's nothing you can do. You prepare yourself by throwing yourself at the mercy of God in Christ, knowing that he and he alone can make you ready. And so what does the future hold? Is it bright? Is it gloomy? Is it more of the same? Well, Jesus tells us, he says, I'm coming back. Won't be right away, and there will be suffering, there will be trials in that time, but I will come immediately, and I will reward you. So what are you longing for? May we be able to say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus.
pray. Oh Lord, you have given us so many good things, and yet the best is you. Lord, may we long for you. Lord, may we not just be surrounded by people who love you. May you cause each one of us in here to have a deep love for you. Lord, may it not be that any in this room would be the one that is left when you return, but that we would be all be the ones going up in delight, for we will be with the one we were made for, you yourself. Oh Lord, wean us, take us off our love of this world, and give us a great, deep, abiding love in you. Your son's name we pray. Amen.